I'm Daniel Frank, and I'm the moderator this evening. And what I thought I'd do is I'd briefly introduce each of the panel members and give them a little information about them. Um, they've provided me with some questions, which I thought I'd use as the start, the basis for the start of our conversation. Um, and what we all decided in the back room was that they very much want to answer questions from you, and they thought the best way to do it is that if you could jot down questions you have on a piece of paper, pass it to someone at the end of the aisle, and then pass them up, um, and I will sort through the questions, and we'll see how that works. Um, Diane Ackerman was born in Waukegan, Illinois. She received her BA from Penn State University and her master's and doctorate from Cornell. She's the author of three collections of poems. Um, she's also the author of several books of nonfiction, uh, most recently a book that Random House published this summer called The Natural History of the Senses. And she's currently working on a new book about some of the world's most fascinating animals. Um, she's a staff writer at The New Yorker, and she lives in Ithaca, New York. Barry Lopez, to my left, was born in Port Chester, New York and received both his bachelor's and master's degree from Notre Dame. He's been writing since 1970. His books include Desert Notes and River Notes, the first two volumes of a fiction, an of a fiction trilogy, Winter Count, a collection of short stories, and two nonfiction books of Wolves and Men, winner of the John Burroughs Society Medal, and Arctic Dreams, winner of the American Book Award for nonfiction. Most recently, he's written a novella-length fable called The Crow and the Weasel. To my right is David Quammen, who is educated at Yale and Oxford and writes the column Natural Acts for Outside Magazine. He's written three novels, um, the most recent one, The Soul of Victor Tronco, and a collection of short fiction called Bloodline. He's also published two collections of essays on science and nature, Natural Acts and The Flood of the Iguana. And he's currently in year three of a new project, a book on the subject of island biogeography a subject which instructs the worldwide efforts to stave off extinction of species on the mainland. That book is tentatively called The Song of the Dodo. David lives in Bozeman, Montana. I mentioned at some length the works of each of the authors because it makes a point that I want to start with, and that is their versatility. Uh, these are three writers who don't hesitate to move between what we think of as in the world categories, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, essays, whatever. All their work defies, defies easy classification, and what I hope comes out of this evening is some sense of what it is that they're trying to do in their work, as disparate as it may seem in form, what is the underlying common thing that they see, and why do they need such a variety of form to get at what they're trying to do. Uh, I know all these writers share an impatience with the sort of label that you might think of like naturalist writer or environmental writer. But what can be said about them is that the idea of landscape plays a central part in their work. Um, the sense of place is sort of very important to them. And I think the first question that I'd like to pose to them and have them each answer, and then we can go on to a more free-form conversation, is from where does this sense of place come from in their own experience? How do you become connected to a place? Can you recall, and can they recall a particular moment when they were overcome by a sense of connectedness? Uh, I think this is a way that we'll get at some sense of them. Diane, do you want to start? Um, 
that moment that you're asking about happens to me every time I go out on an expedition. So there's not just one moment when that takes place, although I think the first time it happened, I was about five years old. I was walking through a plum orchard on the way to school, and I looked up and I realized that the plums that were huddled overhead looked like small bats. And at that moment, I became astonished by that orchard in detail in a way that I continue to be now when I go out on trips. So the 11-year-old is the one who be in me who becomes attached to a, a place. Uh, for me, it happens also the minute, usually on the way out uh, into the field, when I switch from chronicity to seasonal time. I bet this is true for my colleagues as well. I don't know. But there is that moment when it's as if there were two narrow paths and two very steep mountains and somewhat of a distance between them. Each path is wonderful, but you have to take a leap to get from one to the other. And of course, you spend a lot of your time on chronicity, and you're going to have to return to it. But the minute you get out into the landscape, really, everything has to change, I find, and you have, you have to live suddenly on whale time or seal time or whatever it is. And at that moment, um, having to give up customs, routines, schedules, normal diets, eating in any regular way, everything that is known and tried, and having to <coughs> improvise and uh, ad lib and just respond to the imperatives of the landscape around me um, works a certain kind of magic. And I become part of that landscape, something like, uh, it's a kind of romance. I think. I, my mind just becomes a cyclone of intense alertness, and I sit down into it. But the simple answer is it happens every time. Mm -hmm. And I'd be interested in hearing how this takes place among the others. Boy, I don't know. Um, uh, it's a very complicated question. I'm not trying to dodge it at all, but I there's so many different ways to answer this. Um, I, I think if I look at what I do, I, I realize that, that I travel a lot, um, so I'm not in one place. But I think of myself living in this place in, in Oregon on, on a river that feeds me somehow. And uh, my wife and I have lived there for 20 years, and it's um, a peaceful quarter. But I leave there often to travel, and um, I think that the quality that, that about landscape that that most deeply affects me is is the achievement of intimacy with place. Um, and the, the problem you face, I guess, as a writer is that you can't become intimate on the basis of short-term knowledge. So um, I use very predictable and sort of standard shortcuts to try to read a lot of what's been written about a place that I go to. And I always try to choose good traveling companions. And the companions I try to choose are people who um, 
who are intimate with that place. And often they're not people of, of my own culture. Um, they're, they're resident people. They're people that can't be separated from the place. Um, and I, I think that I must feel that, that an a life integrated with place is, is, is one of the definitions of general good health. And I think one of the things that, I hate to say we suffer from, but, but one of the things that certainly causes us anguish in our culture is that we don't really belong anywhere. Um, <clears throat> when the Spanish came into the Caribbean, they didn't treat this place as a home. And, and we, in many ways, have yet to treat the Americas as our home. Um, we don't we don't behave well. Um, we have behaved in a sense like bad visitors, and we've paid for it. And I guess one of the things that I hope for is if I can understand something about the intimacy with place that creates a sense of of well-being or serenity in a resident people. And if I could translate that, then I could say something to my own culture about how to finally come home, how, how to be at home in the places that we occupy. And that means in, in, the, full, in, the, in the sense of accepting the adult responsibilities of living at home, um, um, being, being grown-ups about living in a place. But I don't, I don't feel I've answered the question at all, really. I don't, I don't either. It's uh, <laughs> well, it's going to be a question that's going to come up in various forums, I think, can we have from birth to death to answer this question? Yes. Okay. I mean, I, that's what you're trying to do in, in, your, in your work. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Right. <coughs> David, do you want to take a stab? I'll take a stab. Um, I was going to say, on the, on the question of discovering place, I was going to give one answer to that, and then I realized there are two answers. Um, the first answer was going to be that having grown up in Ohio, where there really isn't much place to the place. Um, <laughs> and gone to school in New Haven, Connecticut, where the same is true. It's sort of an abstraction of place. Uh, I was going to say that I discovered place on September 12, 1973, when I arrived in the state of Montana, never having set foot in the state before. Uh, I drove over a pass from Idaho that day uh, in a Volkswagen bus loaded with everything I owned, which was books, and found this place um, to which I connected immediately and passionately and in a way I'd never connected before um, and stayed there up until now, the rest of my life. Um, and that was uh, one of the most important events of any sort that happened in my life was connecting with that place. Montana. Um, but then I realized that's the second answer, and that I had really connected with place before that, um, and that was when I started reading Faulkner. Diane, have you ever wanted to return to a place that no longer was, that no, that's been changed for some reason? So 
would you write about such a place? Uh, well, I'd certainly, I wish I could go back to the time when our species was in its infancy. Actually, yes, the place I'd like to go back to is the universe before the Big Bang. I, there's only one question that really interests me, and everything else is elaboration, I think, all the rest of my work. And that is how you start with something like hydrogen and end up with us and the rest of nature. That's the one question I would like a simple answer to. And there is no simple answer. But I've often felt if there were really our extraterrestrials visiting us, I would like them to give us a wonderful gift. I would like them to present us with home movies of the way the planet was earlier on, the way we were earlier on, all the animals that have gone extinct. I just desperately want to know how consciousness began and all of the marvels that we've missed. So yes, I'd like to do that. And then I have some very selfish places I'd like to go. I'd like to go back and see Leonardo and give him a fixed wing and a steam engine. <laughs> <laughs> There's a place I'd like to go that, go back to, uh, that, uh, or forward to, that I don't know if any one of us in this panel is going to get to. I would like to go up in the space shuttle and see everything that I've ever known, everyone that I've ever loved in one place, since we were talking about place. And I would like to see the seamless web from that point of view, be, be able just immediately to see how the weather systems that are building over the Amazon are going to affect the grain yield half a planet away, and that all of the 26 wars <laughs> or whatever are invisible at that moment. I think it would give me such a sense of what a neighborhood is that I couldn't really get in any other way. So that's my first choice, <laughs> my first two or three choices. Barry, yes. in terms of what you were talking about when you travel, mm -hmm. when you travel with people and say you read, I mean, one of the things that is true, I think, of all the work of all these panel members is that it's all, your sense is all infused with a sense of the science, you know, whether it's, you know, flora, fauna, mm -hmm. animal life. I mean, you're <coughs> all looking at this information, scientific information, and what is, strikes me is that these are other people's observations. I mean, these are observations that you somehow that you're going to use as an entree to understanding the landscape. But where do you leave off science and start seeing what you want to see? And is there ever any sort of disparity between what a scientist might be able to tell you about a place and what you're seeing? Oh, place? sure. You know, I mean, this <coughs> science is a is a is a kind of inquiry that that has the same kinds of shortcomings as any other system of inquiry. And I don't think, I don't believe I've ever gone anywhere and in the sense that I felt what I was going to see was what science told me was there. Mm -hmm. um, there, there is a range of ideas. Of what, what you see is a mystery. You know, that animal is a mystery. You know, that place is a fundamental mystery. And what you're trying to do as a, as a traveler is to actually be in the place in such a way that you can become articulate about it. <clears throat> and to do that, you have to become, as I said, intimate with it. And to become intimate with it, um, you've got to use all of your mind and your senses and your heart. And part of that is to work with the information that science provides you about a place or an animal. <clears throat> but I remember many years ago when I first started work on, on the 
greatest respect for science and for its, its rigor and for its tenacity and um, for the, the, the range of ideas that was there. But it still seemed to me limited. It only told you so much. And it had an edge of contempt for other systems of knowledge that I thought was ignorant. Um, you and didn't find that the humanities also had an edge of contempt for other forms of knowledge? Excuse me for interrupting. No, this is what <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no, I, they, they all do. I mean, uh, to, I, I, I don't think you can have <coughs> a system of knowing that's, um, that's more penetrating or encompassing than any other system of knowledge. So if you begin with the premise that what you're looking at is a mystery, then it makes good sense to listen to what everybody has to say and balance that against your experience with the place and make sure that <coughs> your experience with the place as much as you can imagine it or, or manage it rather is not colonial. That is to say that, that you don't go to a place and impose your views on it. As, and obviously you do and you can't help but do that. But I, th I think that what you try to, what I try to do when I go to a place is say, in a sense, say to the place, well, what do you think about this? Mm -hmm. Or our people say this, what do you think about that? So you, you make yourself vulnerable to the place and, and wait for a response. I, f I find that the most necessary thing in, in a new place is to just wait. To just wait, it takes a long time. I remember the first time I went to Antarctica that, which was a thing that was arranged by the National Science Foundation, and you know you have X number of days. And I thought to myself, this is three weeks. I can't in three weeks. I can't. I can't begin to work. I don't. I won't learn anything in three weeks. I'll just barely get my feet on the ground. <coughs> and and remember being frustrated by that because it takes me a lot longer to get to know, not because I'm not doing anything, but because it takes a long time. If you're walking through the woods, <coughs> everything's flying away from you. If you stop and sit, the longer you sit, the more the pieces come back into a pattern, and they include you in the pattern, and then you can see. But if you just walk through and you never wait, then what you see is, is only your own disturbance in a way, not, not what's there. So yeah, sure, no, I think the humanities of all of these, and I, and I think that's why probably none of us are scientists or or, or committed to one or, or one one system of looking at stuff. You, know, you, want, you want to use everything, and then you've got to trust yourself. Mm -hmm. I think an, another thing that comes to mind for me is that because I, over the past few years, I guess, have developed such a strong sense of responsibility to society, is what of what you see and learn and know is valuable to your culture as a writer. I mean, it, it, it doesn't occur to me that what I see or what happens to me or what's important to me are automatically the things that are important to my culture. Mm -hmm. the, so I have, I feel an obligation to listen to people I don't like, to talk to people I think um, are short-sighted, because it's, you, you have to look at everything, not just what, what you like, if you're going to come back to your people and say, I went to this place and this is what I saw. Um, and I, I, as time goes on and more of the, as, as more of our, our, 
landscape is, is destroyed by systems of, of, um, of uh, economic systems, arts, for example, um, that this becomes more and more poignant to me to, to be able to be articulate about place so that people can understand what it is that we're losing. I feel that way, too, especially. Uh, I feel that way more strongly about animals, I guess, than, than about place, although... Well, the animal is the place. Right, exactly. Uh, but um, I'm writing a book now on, on endangered animals, and I think as much as anything, I feel a sense, uh, the need to go out and stand witness um, on behalf of people who are not going to have the privilege of being able to go out there, because I don't want these animals to disappear, as they will, probably, in our lifetime, without even being photographed and celebrated and anyone noticing how they move or the richness of their lives drives me crazy that we don't know really how dinosaurs moved or a lot of other animals. And uh, the idea of going out on behalf of a lot of other people and bringing back information about what is out there, a certain kind of frontier, speaks to me very strongly as well. I think, you know, part of, David, do you want to say Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say that part of what, what, in our different ways, what we all seem to be doing is trying to reverse this whole, this whole colonial process, mm -hmm. um, which, which comes with its hierarchical scheme of arranging life. You're talking about um, there are more people today who are disturbed and writing out checks to save endangered species then are writing out checks or are disturbed about the fate of Krinokrora people in the Amazon basin. The thousands of, of groups of, of Aboriginal people with different epistemologies, different systems of metaphysics, different systems of aesthetics, and the, the, the Spanish and the French and the English when they came to North America destroyed it. They took a brilliant piece of fabric and burned it up. And, and, it, and it goes on today, but this, there's a connection, it seems to me, between the, the, the way your heart and mind are broken by, by the recognition of what we have destroyed. It's, it's not just losing elephants in Kenya, or it, it's losing people whom we never, even, we never even in our own imposing way named. They're just gone. The Mandan are gone. They were finished in a smallpox epidemic in 1837. Whatever they believed the face of God was like is gone. Tasmanian and Aborigines. To, hmm? Tasmanian Aborigines. Tasmanian Aborigines. Are gone. People, people today in... Uh, you, you, if you... Uh, it's, that's, why, that's why I said that, that, it's, that to me the animal is the place. We, this, this system that we have for saying, well, let's save this flower which is pretty and big enough for us to see its scale. And, but the smaller things, you know, you were saying before about, about your interest in spiders. And the, we, we, we set things up that appeal to us, and then we, we try to save those things. Mm -hmm. But, but it, it, what, it, what, it, what, it, what we're saying is that let's arrange it all hierarchically. And if we look at the social movements of, of our past 40 years, this, the civil rights movement, the, 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 the environmental movement, the women's movement, all of these reactions against hierarchy. They're all that all people are saying that, that, that the possibility for wisdom and serenity and grace in life is destroyed by the imposition of scientific knowledge is the best kind. The amount of knowledge of the humanities provides the best kind. Or this is the best of this or this is 
or <laughs> or humanity is the is the center is the center of yeah. creation. I mean, that's the way I think of it. You 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 were saying, and this doesn't really touch on the native peoples thing that you're mentioning. Um, but to me, what I'm trying to do, what I perceive you as trying to do, both of you, um, is to complete the Copernican revolution. Absolutely. I used to think when I was a kid, why the hell do we get this day off in the middle of the year for, for Columbus when it should be Copernicus? If there was anybody that you should get a school holiday for, it should be Copernicus. It was the first guy who said, wait a minute, we're, this, actually we're not, and we're still trying to do this. Yeah. We're still trying to break ourselves out of the center and say, do you, and, and, and so much of what gets natural history writing or landscape writers or whatever the, whatever the label is, is trying through all the various forms of language to put ourselves back in the place. I think, I think one of the most mesmerizing, and that's to say not romantic, but fundamentally true aspects so-called aboriginal life or primitive life, is that these people, for the most part, know exactly where they are. It's not just a spatial and a temporal sense of where they are, but they know they're in a place, one, and they know they fit. I remember asking Eskimo people all the time, when you look at us, what do you think? I mean, and you know, you're talking to people who read Time Magazine and you know, they have all the, they have all the sort of stuff flowing through their lives that we do. And I said, you know, in the light of all this, and we're all speaking English, when you look at us as a people, what do you think about us? And often they would say, really clever. You guys are really good with material. And you're very lonely. They think of, a, the, at least the Inuit people that I spoke to, thought of that as a distinguishing characteristic of our culture. Clever and lonely. Clever and deeply lonely. You know, they would, you would go someplace and they would say, where's your wife? Where, where are your children? Why, why do you travel alone? What, what are you doing here? And, and why are your people so separated off you're obsessed with the, the, with, the, with the life of the individual and individual freedom? And if you wander around the world like we do, you see that in every single country, people are saying to themselves, how much room do you give the individual in terms of the right to develop before you destroy the fabric of society? And that's, and that's what part of what we're saying. How, how do you, how, why are we separating these things all out into these pieces when by doing so we're, we're, we're tearing apart the fabric of, of real society, which is a system of, uh, uh, of, of moral relationships, of obligations and courtesies that tie all of life together, that, that, you, that you have the same, uh, the same sense of obligation to another form of life as you have to another person. We're the new guys on the block, you know, with our system of no us. You know, that's a Cro-Magnon people. We don't have any evidence they thought like that. Let's go back to lonely. Yeah. I wanted to ask Diane. You talked about this, the book on endangered animals. Uh, I want to ask you a question that I've been asking myself. Mm -hmm. um, among the animals that we're going to be losing, almost certainly in the next 30 or 40 years, are the big fierce animals the predators, um, the bears, the big cats, um, the large, fearsome, inconvenient animals, uh, the anaconda, probably the Komodo dragon. Um, these are, you know, these have white X's on their foreheads for a lot of ecological reasons that um, have to do with 
habitat destruction in the area and that sort of thing that we don't need to go into. But they are probably doomed, at least in the wild. And there'll still be Bengal tigers in zoos um, and polar bears. But um, those are going to be among the next to go in the wild, all those species. Um, what will we have lost spiritually or psychologically when we lose them? I. I tend to think Is this of a rhetorical question. Well, no, I, it was the beginning of my answer, and I haven't <laughs> gone very far. But the beginning of my answer is that when we lose those, we move into the conservation equivalent of, of death of God theology. Something important is missing. Um, it makes it harder to move us psychologically off that middle point, mm -hmm. that you know, that Ptolemaic center where we put humanity. Um, we're going to be more likely to consider ourselves the center of the universe when we know that we can go into any forest on Earth and we won't be killed and eaten. And my intuition is that when it comes to the point where humans can go into any forest on Earth and know that they won't be killed and eaten, that, that's really a new and dire stage. Well, uh, it's an interesting question. And I, I have so many thoughts roaming around uh, about it. One is that we've been at the top of our food chain for a long time, although the sudden abundance of a certain kind of horror film would suggest that we're not very comfortable about it, or I don't think we'd be constantly going into the movie theaters and reading, I mean, and uh, watching these films in which we're stalked, usually at night, um, by aliens that are going to hang us up in their, in their larders for their young, and by killer shrews, and by all of these things, if we were really comfortable about it. But we would certainly solidly be there at that moment. Maybe we'd stop looking over our shoulders. There are, uh, it's not just the big, fierce animals, though, of course. It's the slimy, crawly things, too, mm -hmm. which are going extinct. But that's a different question. A that's different a complicated question and an interesting question, but a different question. What's going to happen when we're the biggest and the baddest? Yeah. Um, I think I'm afraid that it's going to give us um, a, a dreadful sense of arrogance e and egomania, even exceeding what a lot of us feel right now, because I feel that we are just transients. And uh, at the top of an upside-down pyramid, the sides of which are vanishing very fast, uh, and that in the past, extinctions have been absolutely normal. And in principle, there's nothing wrong with animals going extinct. This is the way that nature cleans house. It aborts um, species that aren't adapting well. And we may be very selfish, and we may feel not that a species is sacred, but that nature is sacred. And we may not be selfish, and we can just say, OK, let the species disappear. Or we can be selfish and say, no, every species is sacred. I don't want to lose any one of them. But I think what we don't anticipate is that in the past, when there have been big die-offs, uh, especially ones caused by large animals occupying spaces, the large animals have died too. And there's every reason to believe that if we allow uh, great numbers of species to vanish, we will undermine ourselves and we will go. I think it should be a colossal alarm to us that large animals are going. As much as I know it's, it's kind of a trendy alarm at the moment that frogs are dying, but it should bother us a lot that the large animals are going too. 
and that I'm just selfish about it. I want as, as rich a spectacle as life of life as possible. I love that all of this is just mere matter. This is back to that hydrogen point a while ago. That somehow you can start with that and evolve the most complicated and subtle life forms that just defy imagination. I, I want every one of them. I want more of them here. I don't want to lose them. Um, go. Thinking that that we um, <coughs> the whole the whole notion, it seems to me, behind the idea that we're saving the planet um, seems to be a bad foot to get off on. Um, um, so I, I try I want to try to come at this another way. What happens to us spiritually or psychologically? step out of the woods and cruise off island and get slapped by a grizzly bear. I mean, that's just not going to happen anymore. There's a pattern, and if we're trying to save something, it seems to me what we're trying to save is patterns, and that the individual components of the patterns in time, moving through these big sweeps of geological time, the pattern is always changing. We're always losing species, and other species are surfacing, so there are these big, big movements basic big pattern stays in place and you know this is old stuff that you, what we're, we're not trying to save wolves and caribou we're trying to save and you, this is such an awkward way to talk about it the relationship between wolves and caribou that's, that's what we're trying to hold on to we're trying to hold on to predator-prey relationships and one of the things that occurs to me is that it's ultimately deeply dispiriting to live in a pattern that you've created. And, and, and part of what seems to be going on to me is that we're, we have recognized that our control over the pattern, that we are determining which pieces stay and which go, um, is wrong-headed because it's in, it, it, it takes too much of the mystery and too much of the, of the vigor out of life, out of the thing that we call life. When, in, in my limited experience with <coughs> Aboriginal people, which I keep going back to because of better than we do, they seem to fit place. And I'm, and I'm not, the older I become, I guess, I'm not impressed by the kinds of things that we offer as, as evidence of our superior, our superiority, you know, the manipulation of materials, for example, to create an automobile or a Those people see themselves in a much less static way than we're used to um, with our very noun-rich and relatively verb-poor language. They see themselves moving in time as part of a pattern. They don't feel lonely because whatever it is that's going on, they're part of it. They're part of creation, and they feel part and we, we've made this investment in being outside creation and in recreating it, in, in managing nature. 
forgotten who this was, somebody that said that these um, uh, people who want to manage landscapes, are, uh, these are the kinds of people that wanted to, would want to manage the book of Revelations. You know, that it's, the same, it's the same mentality. It's to control mystery, which is to confuse mystery with ignorance. I mean, so much, so much of what is happening, I think, now in science, is in field biology at least, is people are recognizing that mystery is essential. It is not, to not know everything about an animal is to come to know the animal. And, and uh, an animal is not the sum total of, a, of a, an enormous amount of generated data. It's fundamentally a mystery. It's a part of a pattern that some of which can be discerned. If you go out in the woods or in the, in the ocean or in the desert or in rainforest, you can look at, you can see predator-prey relationships. You can see links in a saprophytic food chain can see all of these things that you can name, but there's an enormous amount that's going on we have no name for. When, uh, when you say place, you know, when you said earlier, you know, how do you feel about a place, part, part of what my struggle with something like that, I guess, is that, is trying to stop the flow of time and talk about this place. Because you said place, and here's a date. You know, this is a temporal phenomenon, something that's unfolding in time. And that that temporal phenomenon seems to me very important because place is how weather moves through the landscape that you occupy, which doesn't it would have which happens differently over decades. It's 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 place is also exactly how a landscape sits against the sky in Montana. It is not how it sits against the sky. I know all the jokes too, but in <laughs> North Dakota. <laughs> Is it so time for the North Dakota North jokes? No, it's not time for the North Dakota jokes. <laughs> but, but, but when you when you talk to a people about where they are, if you force them to separate themselves from the place so that they then articulate what the place is, you say, no, our people don't live in place. We live outside of place and talk about place. So we're going to pull you out of your place and ask you to talk to us about what you see. They, they don't list an encyclopedic, you don't get an encyclopedic list of animals. What you get is, in my experience, patterns, some statement about how everything is related in time through movements of time, and you also get, um, I, I can never, I don't recall ever talking to, um, to anybody, to, to Kamba people in Kenya, to Pinjanindara people in Central Desert to Inuit people in Baffin Island, who, who, if you say, well, what does this animal do? They say, this, that animal, this time, did that. So, but what this animal does, the range of, of behavior it's capable of, <laughs> nobody knows. It, it, we have this kind of sucked orange <laughs> approach to animals, you know, that squeeze the Bengal tiger, get this juice out, and examine it, and then pitch the, you know, animal. And these, and so-called primitive people are saying, no, see, you can't, you can't just, you can't squeeze the tiger without getting something from what the tiger eats and, you know, all the way mm -hmm. that it's interconnected. But this, this issue of place so often becomes uh, a, a kind of, this, this kind of discussion that you have about paintings. It's not the discussion you have about rivers, for example. You ought to talk about kayaking. River is constantly changing. I, th I think about rivers a lot as 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 animals. One of, if you meet an animal in the woods and you want to know its life.
life history, you can't go forward and backward in time with it. If you see uh, a four-year-old male grizzly bear, you don't know what it looked like when it was two years old or what it was doing. Mm -hmm. So the life history has a direction in time that controls your way to get at what that animal is. But with a river, you can walk up and down through its life history. You can go to its headwaters, and you can go to its, to its, its confluence with another river or its flow into the ocean. You can walk up and down through the history of that animal. And, and that seems to me that rivers continually suggest themselves in time now as, as, as patterns of water or patterns of movement over a slowly changing bottom. Anyway, time is important, I guess. <laughs> I think I'd like to include the body of the river also in this conversation. I knew you'd bring up the body. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just reminded of this, a bit of trivia, which is that in Indo-European, uh, if you take, take the word holy and, and go back to Indo-European with it, it originally meant an interrelatedness of things in which every piece fits perfectly. Yes, I could speak more loudly. So sorry. We were discussing the Indo-European word <laughs> uh, that led us to our current word for holy. In Indo-European, however, it suggested the complete interrelatedness of all parts. No, I was just going to um, encourage you to throw something else out for us. <laughs> well, I was going to ask since you've got a lot of paper, Dan. I know he's got lots of pieces of right. paper. He's got questions. more for security reasons than anything else. <laughs> well, this looks interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you've already answered that question. What about is this no. David's letter? <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, this is David's letter. Oh, I wanted to read this. <laughs> you wanted to read it. Is there anyone from the audience who would like to ask a question? Since I think our procedure is not going to work well. Yes. Well, we should just add a note that when money is, is contributed to organizations to save, let us say, one animal like a panda, really the money most often goes to saving an entire habitat. Isn't that so? So it's really not, I mean, whatever reason you think you're giving the money to save something cute and cuddly, let's say, uh, probably, incidentally, there are people behind the scenes hoping that it will preserve the predator-prey relationship and save a lot of, uh, of the creepy-crawly stuff and other animals as well. Yeah, I noticed David was, David was getting ready to Yeah, I just wanted to say, I think that's a terrifying question. 
which I ask myself about every day. Um, if we feel, as I do, and I think um, these people do intuitively, that it's important to move humanity out of the center of the universe, uh, it's important to stop what we're doing or slow what we're doing to the planet before we uh, either completely destroy or, or grossly simplify what's left of the natural ecosystem. Why is that important? Maybe, according to what you could argue that. I don't happen to believe in God. I don't happen to believe in humanity as a god. And for a while, until pretty recently, like the last year or two, the only god-type thing I could find um, to support that conviction was um, the notion of ecological balance, the mature ecosystem. Um, and now, thanks to those chaos people, <laughs> we don't have that anymore because ecologists are telling thanks, us, <laughs> yeah, and I hold you personally responsible. I think you did a good thing. Um, the ecologists are telling us that the notion of ecological balance is an illusion. Some ecologists, some very reliable ecologists are saying that evolution does not move toward through through succession of speech, species to mature, stable ecosystems that are stable because they're complex, and therefore, if you reduce them by eliminating species, they will become unstable, and you will have created something that was not there. That's gone. So, with those three things gone, I keep asking myself, okay, uh, if it's important not to drive all these species extinct, why? Why is it important? And I feel like I'm doing an intellectual fan dance every time I write about it, because I don't have an answer to that. I think all of our, all of our answers are, I agree with you, are, are going to be selfish in one way or another, and I'm not sure that that's, that isn't perfectly okay. My answer is just that life loves life, and that's a, a very, very selfish reason. It's wonderful to have um, this incredible bounty of life forms around. One thing that bothers me is that I know that nature neither gives nor expects mercy. I see it often enough, we all do. And yet, here we are trying to act with compassion and mercy, mm -hmm. even to be something like seemly in the face of nature. Nature doesn't worry about that. I mean, anyone who sits, I'm sure we, I know that we all have sat and watched the predator-prey drama unfold and it rips your heart out in various ways. The prime directive is not to interfere because let's take in the Antarctic the penguin and the skua. If you see a skua, bird of prey, ripping a baby penguin to bits, every instinct in you makes you want to leap in and do something to protect that creature. And you've got to keep reminding yourself, no, the skua has chicks at home that have to eat too. Um, we feel so moral about nature. And uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think it can lead us into places where we sometimes take actions that uh, 
Maybe, if, if nothing else, give us an even greater sense of power and control over the environment. Maybe that's part of the reason that we're doing it. You know, if you watch a grizzly bear dismantle a caribou, all you have to do is change the scale. Did you tell me this once about watching a robin pull a worm out of, a, out of your front yard? Were we talking about that once? Well, if you change the scale and watch you make a robin the size of a Buick and uh, whatever you need to do to make a worm the size of an anaconda or something, that's pretty terrifying as well. But we don't get upset about birds pulling worms out of our lawns. And I think that compassion and mercy are part of nature. And if they're not, where the hell are we? I mean, wh this is nature. And, th and that, to, for us to say, well, we have all this and they don't have anything, and that nature is without mercy, then, then we're not part of nature because we we've made a big investment in compassion. You know, this is, a, this is a really interesting entity to me, to have compassion. Cum patior, to suffer with. We've, we've put a lot of energy into having compassion. And, uh, and, and I think sometimes we're confused about where to put it. And if we're ever going to get back into the flow of events, we're going to have to recognize that compassion and mercy, like intelligence, are, are part, of, part of the whole package. Does compassion apl apply to species or just individuals? I think compassion, you know, the, uh, this, you, know you did pose a wonderful and very difficult <laughs> question. And, and uh, uh, to, I don't know if I could, what occurs to me is that as long as we talk about triage, what we're talking about is control of nature. What we're saying is that Let's say these guys, because they're cute or our size or good looking or visible or something like that, and let's not save these because, eh, not interesting or something like that. And, and what we should be saying is, let's, let's, let's stop burning down people's homes. I, I, this, I, this, is this is an irrational part of me, I know. I mean, I, don't, I can't, I'm not rational when this comes up, but it's this whole issue of zoos. And zoos are, they're, they're sort of the, the last vestige of colonialism. Let's take the peculiar things out of their homes, strip them of all relationships that are important to making them what they are, and put them in a box for our edification. If you go to the zoo in Central Park and you look at the thing that's Ursus Maritimus, that's not a polar bear. It looks like a polar bear but it's stripped of its spatial and temporal dimensions and all of its relationships with ring seals for one, let alone ravens or snowy owls or walrus or anything else that it comes in contact with. And it's, it's that sense that we're gonna save that animal and put that animal in a box and put a label on it. And the, the whole notion that you can draw two lines and separate Ursus maritimus from water or sky or all of its other relationships with animals is a bit peculiar to begin with. So when, when we talk about triage, what we're doing is still imposing this system of judgment on who's going to live and who's going to die. And I think what we should be saying is the thing that Columbus should have said when he got to Samanake or San Salvador or where the hell he was, is to say, here's some ideas we've got about economics, society, and God. What do you think? And if the people said, nah. <laughs> They should have turned the three ships around and gone back and left the Americas alone. And it, it, we just came in and burned the place down, and we're still doing the same thing. We have these very sophisticated, but I think ultimately inane and fundamentally stupid arguments about preserving species that say, we'll just rip it out of its home and put it here and preserve these things we call genes, and then after 
after the economy settles down and people have the right kind of lifestyle, then we'll let all this stuff come back to life and then we'll plug these things back in. To me, you have to have the courage to kill what you're going to destroy or let it live. And this halfway house of this kind of, of way in which we say, well, we'll just, we'll find some way to put all the parts back together is, is to keep ourselves on the outside as judge and making these judgments about things. You know, uh, to switch this in a radical way, I, 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 have, I hear this, this all the time, this question that I know you have heard, and that is, why, where are the women writing about landscape? No offense. Um, <laughs> I you, know, you know what I mean. And so as people run this, this, this name of, of this, you know, uh, Matheson and Hoagland and you and me and Wendell Berry and all of these men that are writing about landscape and saying, well, now where are the women writing about landscape? Which is like saying, well, white people are really concerned about this. Why aren't Aranda people living in the central desert writing about this? to say, why isn't everybody doing it the way we do? And, and, and it has occurred to me recently that, that one of the ways that women have been writing about landscape for a long time is in novels, where it's not separated as a thing that we have to talk about, some object that's outside of us. You look at a novel like Barbara Kingsolver's Animal Dreams, here's a woman who's writing about the destruction of land, involvement in Nicaraguan politics, uh, uh, bearing witness in your sense, to, to, um, to violence and inhumanity and, and this mania to control the direction of social development. She's writing about her relationship to her sister, her relationship to her father, the meaning of family, the meaning of community. She's writing about all the big stuff in one book. And what, I, what I'm thinking recently is, where are the novels? Where, where, are, where is the fiction, if you will, meaning the truth, of how we're supposed to have a set of relationships that make us healthy, instead of being stuck in this situation where we're having these piecemeal judgments about how, what, how to take care of all the parts. If, you could, if, a, if an individual knew how to love, if an individual knew how to love well, all of these problems would seem to us, I think, manageable. And they don't because we don't know what to love, we don't know how to love, we, we, we segment all of this stuff about vulnerability and responsibility into, in such a way that we're still shopping. We're shopping for the things. I would like to add, we also don't know who we are or what we expect to become, what we want to be. I mean, even as a species ourselves.
Um, I'd like to say a couple of things. First is, we cannot ask Aboriginal people to bear the burden of the wisdom we think that they should have, all right? You know, that we, we have this thing that somehow there's something wrong with us because of, of, you know, the kinds of things that we've done. If we're able to sit in a room and articulate these kinds of ideas, then they must be part of us as well. It's, it's, it's very rare that we, we love to talk among ourselves about what we believe Aboriginal people mean or say or think or something like that. But these are, uh, these are ideas that, that we have too. And, and, and I think it's important for our own sense of worth, our sense of self-worth, is that we're not, we're not some horrible, black, despicable group of people just because we've done the kinds of things that we've done. There's no holy people that I have ever met on the face of the earth, no one people owns all that there is to be known of wisdom. There's no one people that can tell you all that you wish to know or you would hunger for about the nature of the face of God. What, it, what, what, we, what we must do is in this system of courtesies and, and, and eventually, I, you, you hope, out of, out of a sense of kindness and generosity with each other among all of the cultures and not just say, Pintaninjara people or, or people in, in the United States, but, but these parallel cultures, the culture of grizzly bear or the culture of salmon, all of those cultures have something that they know. And if, if there were some way to be more respectful of those things, then we wouldn't, I think, be caught in this business where we pose we pose this idea that one group of people or one system or one something has, has all that there is to be known. I mean, what all we're all looking at is, is pattern, trying and just trying to bring more light to the pattern than, than, um, than is 
Some people in Western culture talk, others don't. You know, we, I, I, it's, it's very important, I think, to realize that, that, that among our own people, among our own white people, are, are, uh, are individuals of heroic dimension, men and women. I mean, look at, look at, at someone like Rachel Carson, or look at someone like, like um, Wendell, Wendell Berry, or, or, or Thomas Merton. Or, or, or go back to the 16th century and look at someone with the integrity of, of, of uh, Bartolome de las Casas. Here's, here's somebody who is whom Eduardo Galeano, the Uruguayan writer, calls the fanatic of human dignity. Every, every age has its horror. Every age has its misbehavior. And in the midst of every age, there are men and women who refuse to be defined by what is horrible in their time of living on the earth continue to try to articulate a set of principles that guide people and create in each individual life, you hope, a sense of serenity, of connection with the holy, or whatever, God or whatever. It, it, and and it, it's, it's good for us to know that. It's good for us to know that, that we don't have to always turn to other cultures for, a, for wisdom. I don't think we threw it away. We, we traded a lot away with agricultural with an agricultural revolution and an industrial revolution. We lost certain things, but how could how could any of the how could how could we read a book in our own language and feel a sense from coming from that book a sense of self worth, a sense of dignity, and a sense of possibility if we weren't still holding on to these things? It's, and it's always good to remember that what we credit Chief Seattle with, or what we credit uh, Joseph than Esperus or any of these other people. What we credit them with is what we read in English. Whether or not they said it, we will never know. This is what we believe, we want to believe they said. We also tend to uh, idealize um, the rest of nature, animals too, in ways that I think is terribly unfair to us. We assume that animals only kill to eat when yeah. they're hungry and things <laughs> like that. We have this myth that we're the bad guys uh, and that there is this ideal state in which they live that we should aspire to in some way. And I think we just feel that other people's fires burn brighter than our own or other creatures. Yeah.
<laughs> I hear there's a hell of a great universe next door. I hear there's a hell of a great universe next door. I said, I hear there's a hell of a great universe next door. David, do you want to respond to that question? Seriously, though, what was the last part of that question? No, no, I'm just saying that all of us, uh, even though we don't believe in God, I was just going to say something about the title of 
this discussion. And um, we're, we're talking about the nature of the universe, and it's enormous. We could, you know, we seem to. I'd l I wonder if we can pull Tr back to the right turn somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> make make a turn, but but to to come back to this idea that um, at least what small part that that Diane and David and I intend to have in this business is that we write or we or we edit. And, and all of us, all, all four of us have, um, my life is as deeply committed, I'm, I am as grieved by damage to my language as I am by damage to my landscape. And in, in this little rubric under which we arranged ourselves tonight, I think that, that, that some of what the three of us, four of us are trying to say is that um, this, our small part here is to try to take care of our language to create um, some kind of dependable literature, not, not necessarily the truth, but some dependable story so that people far wiser or inevitably more powerful politically perhaps than we are can make good decisions. The history of that is that we make bad decisions often. But the fact that we've made many bad decisions cannot deter us from the desire to have good decisions made. And if you try to take care of your language as a writer, and you do so, I, I remember a woman in a, in, a, in a discussion like this stood up in an audience months ago and said, why is it that writers feel so free to criticize society, to express their hatred of human beings? And I, you know, mentally threw my hand to my forehead and I thought most of the men and women I know who write, write out of a love of humanity. I don't know very many people that write because they hate humanity. And so part of what you're doing when you're trying to tell a story is to express a love of humanity which is a dimension of your social responsibility as a writer. And it falls to the three of us that the metaphors that we choose are metaphors that get called landscape metaphors. They're, they're are, they are um, biogeography, or, or natural history, or anthropology, or, uh, or, um, or geology. So, you know, if I if to try to, to narrow what we're doing, um, all of us have have very complex feelings about where we fit and where we don't fit in the fate of, of humanity and much of it's going to remain unknown to us. But in terms of what we can do, at least what, what we can do, what the four of us in our, in our, not really in our professional lives, I don't think any of us feel that, it's, this, it's a way of life to, to be involved with language and landscape. And, and your, your involvement with language and landscape, your tools and your metaphor, continue to occur because you're trying to look for something in yourself that you hope is useful to your people. I don't think anybody can say that they're trying to trying to tell the truth. So I just want to try to narrow David, you didn't you haven't spoken much at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I remember every word we've said. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna play it back.
think one of the things, just very quickly, that we have to do is take it out of the realm of the general and into the realm of the individual in particular. Uh, it's very easy to ignore something in the abstract. It's very hard to actually meet a family that is starving and not be tormented by their personal story. Uh, very easy to talk about, no, to ignore the plight of the, let's say, the Amazon rainforest. Very difficult to become intimately aware uh, in terms of trees and animals and people exactly what is taking place. So I feel that part of my burden is to go out into nature, understanding that I also feel everything is nature, um, as an informed innocent and try to allow a reader to see all of the intricate bustling and fidgeting and everything through my eyes, if humanly possible. One of the great frustrations I feel, just in terms of language, is that indeed you are confronted by what is essentially a chapter from the original Garden of Eden. There is so much life at every level in a lot of the places that we go to. How can you select out of that just a gesture you know, what, what is it going to be, 80 pages, 200 pages, whatever, when really the only fair way to represent the experience of being in that place would take from birth to death and involve all of consciousness. The act of selection I find desperately frustrating. I agree, and uh, that is why, for my part at least, I'm not an investigative writer. I'm a celebratory writer. I believe if you make someone acutely aware of what they're going to miss out on, they're going to fight for it. Well, you know, anthropomorphism is the way that that um, science rails against metaphor. It yeah. yeah, science doesn't like metaphor, and that's why science doesn't like anthropomorphism. Done. I mean, you know, that, I don't mean to be I don't mean to be glib, but that's what it is. You know, anthrop it, 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 it's it's not just uh, you know uh, uh, the business of, of uh, our, this Cartesian duality. Anthropomorphism. Um, is an appalling idea, and and we hold on to it and we use it as though uh, this were a good tool, and it's not. Um, any any time people get 
uh, so some scientists get close enough to an animal to see that it can't be codified, that word crops up. It's, this is a question of society's discomfort with, of science's discomfort with metaphor. And in it, it's, that's, it's a question of language. It's, a, it's an issue in language. And it's a, it's a term we should rid ourselves of. No one is trying to say, I, I don't think, that, that this animal is just like me. That's not why you talk about what an animal's feelings are. What always seems to be understood is it's as if the animal was like this. It's, it's some way to understand our place in a pattern. But it's... Um, I find the idea uh, um, troublesome because it continues to hang on long after so many other obviously racist and imperialistic ideas are, we're ashamed to bring them up in public conversation. People you know, still want to talk about anthropomorphism. People who talk about anthropomorphism, I, I think in one way or another, are looking for some way to um, to excuse the lack of a moral relationship with the other. To, to, you know, that when I said before about uh, something about what we gave up in the Industrial Revolution and in the Agricultural Revolution, we had, in very general terms, I think you could say, a set of contracts of mutual obligations that were observed be in, in a pattern of relationships with people in nature, not outside of nature. And when we removed ourselves from nature, we broke all those contracts. We destroyed reciprocal relationship. And one of the ways we perpetuate this destruction is to accuse people who wish to reintroduce the idea that, the, that, that these relationships must be taken into consideration, our relationships to animals must be taken into consideration. One of the ways to condemn that is to bring up this issue of anthropomorphism. It's sort of a 19th century um, idea. It, it, in the sense that, that we should have grown out of it. Do you want to, David, do you want to say something? No? Okay. <laughs> Curiously. Uh, David, do you want to say something? <laughs> <laughs> You've told breathing. <laughs> High anxiety. <laughs> well, well uh, I lived in New York for uh, about a year, and I felt that Margaret Mead should have met me at the tunnel and handed out a list of all the flora and fauna, a guide to it, because I felt so completely that I had washed up in an exotic land. I didn't. I knew that the rhythms of relationships were different from the rhythms of relationships uh, that I'd seen when places I'd lived more in the country. Everything was different. Um, I find New York, I guess I have the classic love-hate relationship with New York. But one thing that disturbs me is that I think it's possible for somebody, I think there are I think there is a, a, a kind of inner electric to the city that it is possible for someone who doesn't have a lot of their own electric to plug into and have a sense that they are moving and alive. That's what I found when I was living here. And that 
You could get your circadian rhythms very twisted up if you only lived in a place where the constellations were on the ground and uh, you didn't see a lot of the different relationships of nature uh, in a more regular way. On the other hand, I'm also crazy about New York in a lot of ways, but I've chosen, as we all have, to have a place in the country and to make forays in and out of cities and to live essentially as a nomad and go sometimes to extreme places and uh, come to a place like New York as a luxury. Let me say one thing more, too. I, I, I want to just say something briefly about Central Park. Um, New York is certainly a lot better off for having Central Park, but Central Park is scary, too, in the sense that it's a vision of the future. Um, it's what's happening to all of our wild lands. They will become um, small and bordered and contained and therefore simplified. And I'm going back to what I was talking about before in terms of the big fierce animals disappearing. What we will have will be weed species, weedy species, species that can tolerate um, small areas and disruption and proximity to humanity, we'll have gray squirrels and raccoons and coyotes and ailanthus trees and a small number of very weedy human tolerant species in the future. Um, a simplified ecosystem. Um, so New York, Central Park is just that little reminder to me of of what we're headed toward, I'm afraid. You know, it's funny. I was, uh, when I was in New York, I was afraid a lot of the time because there were a lot of places that just as a woman alone I couldn't go to at certain hours and so on. But that's also true for me. I think it's probably not true for you guys when I'm out on a trip, on an expedition. I very often have to take a bodyguard along with me uh, because unfortunately, in many places of the world right now, it isn't safe for a woman to be on her own. Uh, I don't call the person a bodyguard, you know, I take a scientist with me, somebody who <laughs> knows the area or whatever it is, but uh, there's at least one man, a certain age range, reasonably fit, he's not going to have to fight to protect me, but his being with me will mean that there'll be no trouble for me. And uh, you're asking about women who are writing about the land and who are out in it. There are a lot of women who are writing about the land, thank God. But it hasn't always been so easy for women to be out by themselves exploring the land. There have been some brave souls like Lady Hester Stanhope and others in the previous century who just got on her camel and rode out. Um, and there have been some women who have clothed themselves in men's attire, I think is the phrase, um, and did that. But it, you know, it really hasn't been all that easy for women um, in uh, going out and learning about the landscape. I happen to know that Barry frequently takes a bodyguard when he travels, too. Really? Thank you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> it's not safe for men, too. <laughs> Are there other questions?
talked about this a little bit in there, and one of the things I said, Karen, was that um, in the 19th century, the literary traveler and the natural scientist were the same person. His or her name was Darwin or Alfred Russell Wallace or Lady Hester Stanhope. Um, and now the scientists in the field and the literary travelers are completely different people. I don't know exactly what significance that has, but it's something that I'm very aware of, that um, scientists, with very few exceptions, don't write for the people for whom we write. Uh, E.O. Wilson is one exception, and a good exception, with a book called Bibliophilia and a few others that are very accessible and, and are Bibliophilia? I said, I said that. I meant biophilia. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Edit out the, uh, the excess uh, Dan, syllables. That's an editorial question. You should have been on time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if that's important, but it's just a difference that occurs. There's been um, a specialization between the two roles. So we go to scientists and we raid their work um, and present it, as well as traveling out to see it. Um, I don't, I don't know. I've been acutely aware of that, too, that there was that wonderful, there was that delicious overlap for a while, earlier in this century and in the previous century. And of course it made sense that Melville would be going out and writing about nature and writing and putting it in his fiction and so on. Uh, it was a natural thing for writers to do. Maybe we've lost a certain sense of risk-taking and exploration in our everyday life in general. Uh, maybe we've become too specialized in general, very categorical about our lives. But I that's been occurring to me also for quite a while now. For most of the, or a large portion of the 19th century, God was still at the center of the universe. And does that take down the question of God? I mean, is he a critique of himself? Yes. Anybody else want to go on with that? I'm still thinking on, on the previous question, I guess, and, and that is uh, you're talking about what was the verb? You didn't use the verb like poaching. What was the verb about going into the sciences? And Raiding the sciences. Well, the 17th century metaphysical poets were poaching in the sciences and raiding the sciences. Um, I don't think this is something absolutely new, and I don't think that we feel any more overwhelmed by the complexity of science, the truths of science available to us, than they felt overwhelmed. You know, um, uh, I, I always have trouble in this area because I'm trying to find how do you separate concern that you have for language from what, what seems to me the metaphor that you choose. If I were pinned down, uh, as, as often happens in interviews where you create these walls to make people leave you alone, um, and, and somebody say, what are you writing about? I, I, I would say that, that, that I hope 
that what I'm writing about in my life is um, it is is the nature of what is tolerance? What is the nature of prejudice? What does it mean to lead a dignified life? Those are the kinds of things that I, th I think that I'm writing about. But because of the way I grew up, because of my, my encounters as a child with landscape and uh, in particular elements of landscape, um, wind being, being one of them and, and animals being another element of landscape, a separate thing that I saw separate and, and moved, I gravitated toward. I would say that I was, I am a person who, who, who found that, that the impossibility of trying to write about dignity and tolerance and those kinds of things, um, that, that part of my solution was to write in, in the forms that I felt comfortable with, to use, use the patterns that I, where I could, where I could m move around and f get a feeling for the universe or something, and for me, that that was what got co it's what's called natural history. But um, I don't. So I, I really, it, it's a very complicated question about the separation of the concerns of the writer from the concerns of someone who is um, writing about. Um, landscape in the 19th century. I don't, we're not writing about scenery, any of us, I mean, the, the, um, or it, and it's not, it's not entertainment in the low sense of that. I think it's, and, and, and I think of, you know, a lot of people say about somebody like Annie Dillard, that Annie Dillard is a naturalist or writing about um, nature or something like that. And, and it's probably closer to the truth that saying, to say that this is a woman who's deeply concerned about language and culture and um, and issues of uh, and spiritual issues and I, I you know if 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 I had to give up if somebody said here's John Muir here's here's Thoreau and here's Moby Dick and you can only keep one well I keep Moby Dick Bec that, that's where that's where I trace myself back to, I think, because as, as a boy, and that is in the exploration of the mystery of, of, of life lay all the big questions. What is the relationship of the individual to God? What is the relationship of the family to the nation? The things that seem to me larger than, large, the, 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 they were incomprehensibly large and important issues. I could see the edge of them when, when I traveled through deserts or when, as a, as a child, I spent summers in Grand Canyon or something like that. So I don't, um, I, I, I don't know if somebody else wants to speak to that, but it, I don't. I, ca I can't, in my own mind, understand how to separate issues of language from from issues of landscape because um, the, the quality of the and the depth of my love for both is the same. I don't. It's the all. It's all the same. It's, it's it, the desire that drives me. I think is to want to tell 
a story well to, to recognize the therapeutic dimension of story, how story helps heal and illuminate. And the only things that I know about are the things that I learned about from childhood, about what gets called landscape, about how wind moves through trees, and why things, why what propolis smells like, and um, you know, in the, in the spring. Part of uh, nonfiction writing for a mass audience, i.e., for magazines, which the three of us all do, is um, sensing the interests of and connecting with an audience. Is there any part of this audience that doesn't feel like their interests are being connected with?
Yeah, we're all passing. <laughs> so sorry. Dan? <laughs> Do you want to start? Um, language is always being abused, but I don't think it ever dies. And so you think that it's easier than dying right now. Um, I don't know the figure, something like 30 cents a day or whatever. And uh, words are going out all the time. New words are being created all the time. Dying out, and then there's a point where it's just part of natural history. So it's also part of natural selection of language. Um, it's yes, it's a shame to to lose words like Fletcherize or whatever you're going to lose, but uh, we end up with a lot of new words too, um, and we take a lot of words that used to mean things that used to have wider meanings to us because we knew the story that was that went into the formation of the word, and we just kind of slur over that now and it's just putting a coin in a slot. So we've lost a lot of emotion and um, provocativeness about language. But nonetheless, I think we all feel that language is a magnificent way with, with which to inquire about the world. Um, I've, I've always felt that way as a poet, and I feel that way as a prose writer. And though I find, as I said, a lot of frustrations, language is man-made and we're trying to use it to map things, emotions, and circumstances, and landscape, which is not man-made. Um, that's frustrating, but it drives you into such fascinating challenges. If you have any passion for language at all, it's thrilling to try to find the perfect phrase with which to describe the movement of someone, or the gesture of someone, or some animal. There's, I, I just find a high-wire thrill in that, and could work on that problem for days at a time. So I feel both ways about the powerfulness of language with which to talk about land and uh, animals and the hopelessness of language with which to do that. And I don't feel that uh, language is going extinct in any way. You lose, you lose some, you gain some. history of landscape, I think it's proper to talk about the natural history of language. And I think that when Barry Lopez talks about when he works, he's caring about language, I think he's aware of the history of, of particular words, of their meanings, and that, you know, that instead of talking about it in terms of death, of the words that are being obliterated, I mean, I think that all three of the panelists are sensitive to, you know, in their work. We're also, we're also writing within a fashion, a literary fashion, 
uh, of our time, which we may or may not want to pay attention to. I mainly don't want to pay attention to it because I find it too puritanical. And I require a vast number of verbs to get across what it is I'm seeing. If I am encountering something that is absolutely new to me, then I can't use a lot of placeholder, commonplace, simple language. I need to piece together things in a more complicated way. So we're doing all of our work within the certain kinds of restraints that are just imposed upon us by the, the literary fashion as well as anything else. It was not my title. <laughs> I think I think we've been I think I do think we've been talking about I don't mean to be impertinent, but, but I think that we have been talking about society in the sense that we're trying to raise issues of responsibility, the responsibility of writers to society and how society finds a direction by by reading, by reading what the three of us or any other people, Peter Matheson and other people who've been named this evening, by what those people write. No, we've also been, been talking, especially Barry, about uh, moral obligation. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to start an ethical conversation, really, about nature. But I do think that what's going to happen is that we quite soon will end up with departments of eco-ethics, you know, symposia on eco-ethics. It's going to have to come to this because we are so close to some of the urgencies of nature right now, we're getting involved. And we have been talking about the role that people play or should play or shouldn't play in saving species or um, triage was brought up. We began to touch a little bit on it. Uh, Sophie, um, in terms of uh, what we were saying earlier about um, the need least the perceived need to move humanity out of the center, out of the, um, the kingly or queenly dominating um, position in the universe, which I feel is a need. I think we, most of us feel is a need. Um, I didn't mention these, but there are some societal questions that connect up with that very quickly. Uh, at what point does conservation, arguably conservation of, of rare species and rare genes and ecosystems, become more important than human life when we have much human life, many human lives, and not many uh, individuals of the Bali starling or of the mountain gorilla or whatever. And when you move into that question, then the next question you also move into is at what point does conservation become more important than democracy? Um, I don't know. I don't have answers to those questions, but I, I keep butting against them and, and wondering about myself or even asking those questions, wondering if I'm a, a horrible fascist non-liberal person. <laughs> but it seems to me that they're important and real questions that are going to intrude um, more and more uh, manifestly and unavoidably all the time. I At what point does conservation become more important than democracy? Or than private property. A lot of very endangered animals property. exist only on lands that are privately owned. 
birth rate increases as it is. Who's accommodated? Well, to be specific about that, Sophie, a case in point is um, Earth First people going to trial for defending wilderness areas in a way that is against the law. Um, that has become a, a question for them. And if we put them in jail, I, I think you know, Barry's point on that is, um, is apt. Um, Justice Department may be accommodated. Due process may be accommodated. Um, the old growth timber will not have been accommodated, and the people who are in jail will not have been accommodated, except in the sense that they have accommodations. One, one thing that I would like to say that makes me uncomfortable about this is that I don't know. And it is not my job in, in, in that sense as a writer to know. It's not, that's, I don't have that skill. The only skill I have is the ability to tell a story, not to make something up, but to tell a story. And I realized because of your earlier question about what is the relationship between language and landscape and society, that that issue is, is, is clear in my own mind. Um, and the reason that I, that I had difficulty understanding why it was not clear to you is that I was just participating in my own idea and, and not seeing beyond it. But language is I would say that as a writer, my sense of what my responsibilities are, um, uh, are largely social. I mean, I can say and, and would have said when I was a young man that I'm in service perhaps to a vision, some way in which I see, and that is the truth which I, that, I, that I seek as a writer. But as I have grown older, and as I've traveled in other countries and talked to writers in South Africa or in China, for example, um, I've, I've become more and more aware of the social responsibility that I have as a writer. And that underpins, I think, everything that I think about as a writer. And the kinds of definitions for writing that come to mind are those that I have gotten from indigenous people who say things like, you're the storyteller as long as the stories you tell help. And when they don't help anymore, you're not the storyteller, no matter what you say. And a translation of an Inuktitut, an Eastern Arctic dialect, Inuit word for storyteller, Isumotok is the word, and it translates as the person who creates the atmosphere in which wisdom reveals itself. It's an appalling thought to me that writers 
are somehow invested with a kind of intelligence or perspicacity or a, a, a social vision so that they know what's right. No, I know you don't, but, but what I'm saying is that that's why it makes it, it's so clear to me that if you would say landscape uh, or, or language and society and landscape, that, that what we're talking about here is a group of people who have a clear and obvious devotion to language, who are comfortable traveling in landscapes and writing about them, and after they are in service to their own individual um, um, vision, their own, their own, their own pursuits, are, are acting in a social way, are trying to be socially responsible in, by, by providing not the answers but, but clear enough descriptions so that truly wise people can say, this is a, this is a trustworthy story upon which um, we, can, we can promulgate law or social change or something like that. But it, I, it, it's... it's um, I personally feel this is uh, um, th that uh, writers don't, that they're not in, in any kind of driver's seat in, in the sense that, that, that I, I would feel that I had the answer to anything. All, all you can do as a writer is offer what, what you see. You know, I, I, if I think of what it, what it means to me to be a writer, I think of these very simple things. You're the servant of language. That means that your life is in service to your language, you, which you do well or, or you don't do well. And it means you try to care for the language by, by seeking clarity and beauty in the words that you put down on a piece of paper, for example. And you're the servant of memory. You're the servant of your own memory. You try to say as well as you can what you saw, not what you wanted to see. You're the servant of memory in the sense that you serve your people as, as a writer by saying, what your people saw and remembered, so that in that sense, any writer, or, or most writers, are the enemies of totalitarianism, because totalitarianism seeks to rearrange memory to serve itself. So, so you, in, in some sense, you're just a chronicler for your people. So that's, that's why I feel that, those, that, those, that we've been talking about social issues all along. I, mean, I think that's a good place to end. Uh, thank you very much for coming.